It's good to be back here at Community Bible Church again. Um, I know over the last two weeks, you've been wandering around the desert with the Israelites. The heat may give you some sense of what their experience was like, though obviously the humidity is unique uh, to the north. There's something good, I think, in wandering with the Israelites through the desert over several weeks at a time. And I've never quite known how your church chooses its uh, readings for scripture and its preaching schedule. I I suppose I could just ask at some point. (laughs) But I and other folk who um, preached here have talked among ourselves occasionally and thought, what an unusual passage. I would never have chosen it myself. And that's precisely the point, I suspect, is that when you choose the passages for yourselves all the time, when it's not driven by um, some forethought or by a lectionary or by a cycle of readings, you end up reading only those passages which comfort, which affirm, which um, mildly challenge, but which rarely confuse or perplex. And there's a lot of perplexity and confusion, I think, in Scripture that's worth wrestling over. When I was a student in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and we'd have our multi-school training events back in Chicago, the worship leader in that era loved starting our conferences with one song. It's a song I suspect many of you know well. It's a hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. And I remember singing it and being always a little perplexed by the first lines. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. And it's this wonderful hymn, but there was that second line, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. And I know the hymn writer is quoting scripture, but it seemed like such an odd, perplexing thing to sing about at a conference where we were going to disperse into tracks focused on how to get to know God better whether it was digging into a quiet time, learning to study scripture better, helping other people grow in their faith, sharing our faith with other people. The last thing you'd think we'd be singing about is that God is hid from our eyes and inaccessible. Well, the entire point of the conference was to make him more accessible and more real and more live to us. And yet now that I'm a little older, closer in age, I suspect to that worship leader than I was when I was singing those songs, I've grown to appreciate the wisdom of choosing that as the first hymn that we began each conference with year after year, semester after semester. Because there's an there's a over-familiarity that can develop in our relationship with God. There's an assumption of how we will relate together, how we will speak to one another, what we will say to one another. Um, a falling into a rut, if you will. I wonder if you ever experienced that as you think about your own relationship with God. Whether God to you is so concrete, so well-known, so visible in many ways, that there isn't quite as much surprise, perplexity, or distraction. Or if every now and then, like any relationship with any real person, God occasionally does something that surprises, that jars you a little bit, that causes you to rethink what you know and what you think you would like to know about this God. We're in one of those passages, I think, when you look at Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. It's a perplexing passage in a number of ways, primarily because of the way it ends. 
Moses has been leading the people of Israel around the desert for approximately 40 years at this time. He spent 40 years prior to that serving as a shepherd, tending to the sheep of his father-in-law in exile from the people, from his own people, from the people that he's grown to love and be passionate about. The 40 years prior to that, think about his history. This is a man who knows from the day of, the, as soon as he can tell a story, as soon as he understands the answer to a question, because you know how little children love asking, where did I come from? Tell me about me when I was a baby. That The initial stories he would learn about himself would run something like this. With an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, young Moses, God saved you. Your mom entrusted you to the waters. Your older sister accompanied you. And God used the daughter of the very man who intended to kill you to save you. God raised you up in this palace, but you don't belong to us. You're one of them. But you know everything that we know. You know how to speak like we speak. You know all of the issues in the politics. With an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, young Moses, God brought you into this life. There's something special he's intending for you. To have that be your history, to know from the time that you were a child all the way until this point that God had saved you for a purpose to call his people out of Egypt, to lead them into the promised land, the land overflowing with milk and honey, to arrive to the place that he had promised your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that they would finally come home and then be told at the end of the chapter, you're not going with them. You're going to take them right up to the edge, and I'm going to forbid you to cross over. It's a little bit of a jarring passage. Why not? What possibly, what possible reason, what, how large could the infraction be that would cause God to deny Moses the opportunity to experience what Moses' entire life has been destined toward? I'm convinced as we think about dishonoring God, which was the topic I was given, and God's holiness, which drives this interaction that God is making a point both to Moses, to the people of Israel, and to us about how we relate to him, how we should be a little surprised by him. And while we can trust him, we should also be weary because this is a holy God. One of the things that God seems to be pointing out to Moses, or at least I picked up as I was looking through the text, is that God's holiness completely transcends our circumstances. Consider Moses' position in the first five or six verses of this passage. It's in the first month the whole Israelite community had arrived at the desert of Zin, and they'd stayed at Kadesh. And there Miriam died and was buried. Consider who Miriam was and the extraordinary pressures that Moses was feeling at this time. Consider Miriam's importance in his life. Miriam was the older sister to Moses at the time that the Egyptian pharaoh decided to commit genocide. Miriam was the older sister who, as Moses' mom, committed him to the waters. Into a place, admittedly, where people were likely to bathe and come across him, right, in the reeds. Miriam was the one who followed that little ark, that little basket, that little boat. Walking along the side, waiting for God to act, seeing what God would do to save her own baby brother, Miriam watched and waited. Miriam had faith. And when Miriam noticed that it was the Egyptian princess who picked up the basket, who noticed that the baby was there and began to question, clearly not intending to kill the child, but to care for the child, Miriam was the one who, I think, compelled by the Holy Spirit, motivated by faith in God, walked up to that princess, even though she was a slave child, and said, 
do you want me to find a mother for that child? I know a woman, still nursing, ready to do this. Miriam, Miriam was the eyewitness to the most pivotal event in Moses' childhood. Miriam was the one who welcomed Moses back home and helped Moses understand, I suspect, this is who your people are, Moses. This is what God has called you to do. Miriam is recognized as a prophet in both the Old and the New Testament. She testified to what God was doing. As God saved the people of Israel at the Reed Sea, Miriam was the one who burst out into the song proclaiming God's goodness, helping Moses and the people acknowledge what God was doing. Now, Miriam was also somewhat of a troublesome leader at various times in Moses' life, and God surely judged her for that. But if, when you consider the pivotal role that Miriam played in his life, imagine what it would be like after co-leading the people of Israel for over 40 years in the desert, having this person who is the touchstone to how you understand how God worked in your past and in your childhood suddenly to die. The grief that Moses must have experienced at the death of a sister. This family must have been intensely precious to him. The incredible sense of loss as Moses has watched an entire generation of Israelites perish in the wilderness where at the end of 40 years of their wandering, and he's realizing it's his sister's turn now. To experience the heartbreaking loss of someone that close to you, it's pretty extraordinary circumstances Moses is operating under. Why is God so frustrated? Why is God so angry? Then if you consider not only Miriam's death, but the next couple of verses, the people of Israel are doing what the people of Israel often do. And it would be so remarkable if we didn't do it ourselves. Now, there wasn't what they wanted, no water for their community. And the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled and said, if we'd only died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord, why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert so that we should die when there was fruit and grain and water in abundance where we were? And there could be in the future, but we've been wandering out here in the desert. Forty years of whining and rebellion and grumbling and just bad attitudes against Moses' leadership by the Israelites. I mean, consider the types of things that they're saying. You dragged us out here. These are the people who were born in the desert. They know no better. It's 40 years of working with people who not only whine at you and complain at you, which honestly I can tolerate for about 20 or 30 minutes before I want to just say suck up and deal It's 40 years of working with people who dishonor God constantly in spite of his visible and really concrete demonstrations of provision and help, right? It'd be one thing as a leader if people just whined and complained at you. That's wearying. But to have the God that you serve who's visibly manifesting himself with you constantly, who's providing food and drink constantly through this period, to have them dishonor him by saying, it would have been better if you had killed us too, like you killed these other people who blasphemed against you, God. We'd rather be under that kind of judgment than live under your present care like this. That would drive anyone insane. So is it surprising that Moses strikes a rock rather than speaking to it? Yet, God clearly judges Moses. God clearly points out Moses' actions are wrong. God seems to be saying our circumstances can't determine our response to God. It strikes me as I watch the Israelites and reflect on my own life, my sin management system is a lot like my diet management system. I tend to indulge based on times of victory or loss, high stress or great relaxation, boredom or excitement when I'm alone or when I'm in company. Pretty much you see the problem, don't you? That 
my ability to pursue a disciplined path of faithfulness, whether to God or to eating healthy, can't be tied into my circumstances because whether I'm happy or whether I'm sad, I would like to eat. Whether I'm stressed out or whether I'm relaxed, I would like to eat. Whether I'm with people or I'm alone, I think I would like to eat. And the same is pretty much true of my sin. God's holiness must transcend our circumstances. It's absolute and above that. If we reduce God and our obedience to God merely to the sum total of our experiences, whether it be dieting or sin management, your New Year's resolution, or just a small inclination after a service, you know and I know we won't get around to it. There will always be a reasonable exception. One of the most compelling examples, I think, of somebody who, in a passionate and painful way, experiences what it means to live with God's holiness, not determined by your circumstances, um, is a woman named Beth Brewer. Beth was the wife of Tim Brewer, who was the pastor of Central Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. Uh, four months before his death by suicide, Tim was seriously injured in a train accident. And though his leg had to be amputated after that accident, and though he lived in considerable pain, he returned to the pulpit at Central Presbyterian and continued to preach quite compellingly and quite powerfully, evidently. Nobody really realized the strain he was under until pretty late, and the emotional and spiritual pressures of pastoring a large church, of having three small children at the home, two of whom uh, were severely handicapped, and added to all the physical and emotional trauma triggered um, a great experience of despair and crisis, and um, he took his life. Beth, at his funeral, shared this. Here was a man who suffered more than any other man I've ever met in my life. At the time of his death, his depression was aggravated by drugs he should never have been on, confusing the messages he received from his brains that life no longer made sense. He knew enough that what he was going to do was horrible, yet he was too weak. He couldn't stop himself from doing it. In the darkest hour, terrified, alone, Tim took his life and died before the sun rose the next morning. The question we all ask is why? Why, God? Why did a man have to suffer so much? Why didn't you just let him die in that train accident in the tunnel? Why did you put him through those four months of torture? She then looked at the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation to explain the depth of evil and power and the immensity of God's grace through, that brings salvation. And then she continued in a voice that people said later was pretty firm and unaffected. So where does that leave us as a church? Well, first of all, I know the psychologists have been giving us the seven steps of grieving, and the first is, well, it's okay to be angry with God. Psychology can give us insight in how to relate to one another in our human relationships. It dare not dictate to us how our response to God should be. After Job had been horribly afflicted, his wife, looking at him, said, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Go ahead, Job. Let him know how angry you are. Job replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin when he said, it did not sin in what he said. What are we saying when we say it's okay to be angry with God? We're saying to God, we don't trust you. You're unjust. You're unfair. How could you do this? We attribute horrible characteristics to God that are blasphemy. God gets our attention. In the death of a man who was so loved and so faithfully proclaimed the gospel of truth, God disciplined his church. Had Tim died in that train wreck, we would have mourned the loss of a godly man, but God allowed Tim to run the most grueling leg of the race 
and suffer the most intensely so the church would have to look at itself and say, what happened? What was my part in this? We take our anger and we look at ourselves and the Holy Spirit enlightens the darkness that is there. We repent and, before, and fall before God and we realize that it is impossible to obey the greatest commandment, which is to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul. And we cannot love our neighbors as ourselves as he commands us to do. We repent and our hearts are changed. Tim's last words were written in a letter to her. As for myself, I am certainly not proud of, the life, of my life. I wish that I might have had the strength to repent one last time like Samson and glorify God in my death even more than in my life. Obviously, I have not. May God have mercy upon my soul for the damage which I've caused to his church, his name, and worst of all, to you and our beloved family. It has always been true, but now more than ever, I know that my only hope is in the blood of Christ. Yours forever, Tim. Beth ended her testimony with these words. My beloved husband, Samson's last words were for vengeance. It was God who glorified himself in Samson's death. Your last words were for mercy. How much more will he glorify himself in your death? There's something that strikes me about her understanding of God's holiness that transcends and is absolute above our circumstances. Now, I do think there's a place to express our anger and our confusion to God. Thanks be to God, the Psalms are there. And page after page, they sing out our pain and our sorrow, our weakness and our despair, our anger and our confusion. And they give us permission. But I think what she was going at is the should. In the end, our knowledge and relationship to God cannot be determined by our circumstances. We can express our sorrow, our grief, and our anger, but we come face to face with the holiness of God. Consider Moses' condition as he faces these terrible circumstances, and as even God's holiness forces him to confront and to transcend his own personality and experience. Because as you know from the story, Moses is commanded to speak to the rock, but instead he turns and confronts the Israelites and says, You rebellious people, how long do we need to put up with you? Let me show you. And he whacks at the rock twice with his staff. Now, as you think through Moses' life, you begin to realize Moses has a little bit of an anger problem which is compounding the circumstances. Moses emerges on the scene as an adult, surveys the land, sees his people being abused, and his first response is to go kill an Egyptian who's abusing a fellow Israelite. Now, a number of people have said, you know, oh, this is really, you know, Moses acting too quickly. This isn't what God intended. What I'm seeing, though, is that there's something good and decent. When Moses sees injustice... When Moses sees people being oppressed or abused, Moses gets angry. And there's something about anger that I think can drive us to action in ways that sadness and pity do not. Sadness and pity are actually pretty um, passive emotions. They allow us to wallow in how we feel. But when Moses sees something going wrong, he strikes out and he moves. He does that with the Egyptian, not me not perhaps terribly wisely, but certainly strongly, as he flees Egypt and goes to Midian, he does the exact same thing, doesn't he? When 
He sees these poor shepherdesses being abused by some men. He steps in, writes the situation, and gets himself a home and a wife and a job. He's pretty efficient that way. When he sees the people of Israel after he descends from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, after having waited for, to hear from the Lord, and he sees them worshiping a golden calf, Moses is furious, and he chooses to act. He calls the Levites to himself and cleanses the camp. Often for Moses... His anger, which is understandable, is channeled into righteous ends, which accomplish God's purposes. But in this circumstance, Moses' anger, which is understandable and could have been righteous, causes him to condemn the Israelites, and then in the end, he ends up condemning himself. Because it's interesting, God's instructions to Moses were, go take this staff, go to the rock, address the rock, in my name, and the rock will deliver water. At this point in Israel's history, God doesn't seem to rebuke the people of Israel. He'll do that again in the next chapter or so. But at this point, perhaps God chose, was choosing to answer their grieving, sorry, their grumbling and complaining by demonstrating his mercy and provision. Yet Moses, angry both on God's behalf and frankly, I think, on his own behalf, because he does say, how long do we need to put up with this? Do, what do we need to show you? Chooses to lash out. There's something, I think, about Moses' great strength, his anger at the sight of oppression and injustice, which leads him terribly astray at this moment. There's something as well about Moses' leadership ego, which gets caught up as well. Moses is clearly a leader. When the people of Israel start grumbling, they complain against him. And so, like a good leader, he goes to the um, tabernacle. He throws himself down and waits for a word from the Lord. But... Somewhere in the midst of that confrontation with the people of Israel, Moses turns his attention away from what the Lord has said to what the people have said. He turns that moment from God and addressing the rock as God commanded him to do to addressing the people instead and rebuking them in God's place. And I suspect for Moses on God's behalf. There's something about those of us called to leadership, whether here at church or in the marketplace, right, which requires both um, a sense of ego and identity strong enough that you're willing to stand in front of other people and say, we are going this way. And for Moses, largely, it serves him well. But in this case, that sense of we are going to go in this direction, people, you will follow me because I have heard from God, that leadership moves into some level of self-importance and then to self-pity, which may be the endemic sin of all of us who are called to leadership. How long do we have to put up with you? What do we need to show you? Moses seems to see challenge as something which initially invited intercession, but now provokes him to sinful action. He confuses the issue of leadership with his own agency and importance. I wonder if God's holiness not only transcends our circumstances, but also transcends our personality and our experiences. In some ways, Moses is experiencing the dark side of his own strength, isn't he? Because I think every strength has a dark side. Moses is anger at injustice, which causes him to move, too often comes out just as rage against people who disagree with him. And the dark side of our strength, I suspect, comes from either overuse of a strength, because, you know, when you think you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, 
or the underdevelopment of a side of your personality or a corresponding weakness that's attached to that kind of personality profile. I think of David in the Old Testament or Peter in the New, right? Passionate, excitable, incredibly impulsive people. Oh, there's a giant confronting us? I'll go deal with it. Which leads him to, oh, look, there's a pretty woman on the terrace over there. I will take her. Or Peter, I will follow you even to death, but when push comes to death, I don't really know the man. Sometimes your greatest strengths can be your greatest weaknesses. For Paul, intense, focused, driven, which causes him at one era of his life to actually persecute the church and another end of his life to build it up. I wonder if, as people who live in an era which so desperately calls us to understand our strengths, that the unique Christian contribution to that conversation that occurs in the marketplace and in our schools should be, what are the dark side of our strengths? What are the inherent weaknesses that come from an over-reliance in what we're good at? For those of us who are engineers, do we assume everything's a system that can be cured rather than maybe a person who needs to be cared for? For those of us who like abstract thinking, is it all just a nice theory or is there a practical reality? For those of us who are passionate, do we have discipline? For those of us who are very disciplined, can we enjoy the spontaneous relationship that God intends? God's holiness transcends our personality and its strengths and its dark sides. And when you even consider Moses' personality, you have to ex- consider his experience as well, his assumptions. In Exodus 17, we hear of an almost identical situation. Moses and the people of Israel are wandering around the desert. They're dying of thirst. They're incredibly thirsty. God speaks to Moses and says, take a staff, strike a rock, water will come out. At that time, that's what God wanted. Why did he change so drastically this time? Why is Moses punished for doing now what he was called to do then? The only difference seems to be it's what God commanded him to do, and he needed to pay attention. We need to pay attention to what God is actually saying, not what just we expect him to say, what experience would lead us to believe he's been saying, or what our own desires would cause us to want him to say. It's easy to take God for granted in the same way that we take the people in our lives for granted. I've only been married about five and a half years, but there are a number of sentences my wife can start that mentally I can finish. And if I verbally finish them out loud, bringing thought to action, I'm frequently right, but when I'm wrong, I'm tragically, tragically wrong. If it's so easy to do with the people in our lives, how much so more with God? And Moses seems to suggest that our past experience of God, while generally leading us in the right direction, can often become a crutch for an actual relationship with God where we listen intensively, where we pay attention with our hearts, mind, soul, and strength to what he's actually saying, not just what we desire him to say. I know I've read this quote before, but Annie Dillard, who's one of my favorite authors, attends church, and she says, occasionally I'm just astounded at the casualness by which we approach a worship service. She said, on the whole, I don't find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? Our churches are playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats at church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. We should, ushers, should, ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. 
for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. But somehow, some way, so easily, 52 weeks a year, 10 years every decade, a couple decades in our life, we just assume, I think, we know what God will say because he said it before. We know what he'll command because he said that in the past. And sometimes we can fail to pay attention to what God is actually saying. And what God reminds us in the story is that pay attention because what I say matters. Quite apart from your experience in the past, quite apart from your own personality and profile, what I say matters and it must control. God's holiness is absolute above our circumstances and above our personality. And it's so absolute that we dishonor him when we don't obey. Moses' commands are pretty clear in this passage in verses 6 through 8. Take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. But Moses does exactly what the Lord does not command. There's no excuse for Moses in this passage. God's commands are clear. I wish there was ambiguity. I wish... There was some weird divine silence that you could reinterpret, but God's, Moses seemed to have turned God's act of mercy to the people of Israel into an act of judgment. It's instead, Moses turns away from the rock, away from where the Lord intended him, and faces the people instead. Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. You'll notice what Moses also does. He turns the attention away from God to himself. It's not, shall not God bring water out of this rock for you? Bam, bam. It's, shall we not do this? We who are standing in front of you, we who feel burdened by you, we who feel angered by you, we who are your leaders, and it's all about us and not about God. There's no excuse. Ted Koppel, who only those of us of a certain age will now remember since he's no longer actively on TV, but... Um, who many of us remember, especially when Nightline first appeared way back when, spoke at a commencement address at Duke University back in the mid-'80s, and I've always been a little struck and caught up in his words. He said this, We have actually convinced ourselves that slogans will save us. Shoot up if you must, but use a clean needle. Enjoy sex whenever and with whomever you want, but wear a condom. No, he said. The answer is no. Not because, not no, because it isn't cool or smart or because you might end up in jail or dying in an AIDS ward, but no, because it's wrong. Because we have spent 5,000 years as a race of rational human beings trying to drag ourselves out of the primeval slime by searching for truths and moral absolutes. In its purest form, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder. It is a howling reproach. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the ten suggestions. They are commandments. And if someone like Ted Koppel could say that to an audience at a university filled with Christian and non-Christian alike, how much more so us who believe that God has spoken, who's revealed himself in his son, whose Holy Spirit testifies within us that what God has said is true, whose commands are sure, whose promises can be trustworthy. God's commands to Moses are clear and there's no excuse for the disobedience and God doesn't make one for him. Because there are consequences. Think again about Moses. The task he was created to do and called to do, he will not complete. He will stand and look at the promised land from afar, but never enter. He will die before he enters in. 
just like every one of the Israelites who failed to take God at his word, who didn't trust that God would allow them to enter the Holy Land, and who decided to wander instead for 40 years, like the entire generation of Israelites who lacked enough faith to go in when Caleb and Joseph and the others brought in their report. I suspect for all of us, myself included, you want to go, God, that's just a little unfair. Moses put up with an awful lot. I mean, I, I would never want to lead that many people around anywhere. It's bad enough leading a small region in university. It's hard enough leading, um, with my wife, a family of one child. Forget an entire people who grumble and complain to see who seem to have no memory and no actual experience of you. But I want to suggest that even that gut response, that merciful, compassionate response in us, which says that's unfair, God should have just cut Moses a deal, given him a break, maybe presumes a little bit too much on grace and doesn't take God's holiness as absolutely, as transcendently as God desires. It could be that we've grown so familiar to the graciousness, mercy, intimacy, and eminence of God that his transcendence, holiness, totally otherness escapes our memory. That grace is precisely that, grace. It's never deserved, it's never owed, it should never be presumed upon. That mercy is an unfettered, unexpected experience of God's goodness to us when judgment is all that we are due. That occasionally, even on this side of the cross, as we accept mercy freely and with great joy, without fear and without shame, it would be good for us as a church to step back, to look, to realize that if one of God's greatest servants who saw him face to face, who knew him like no other person knew him, at such a small level could violate the law and be judged, how much greater should our worship be when we look at what Christ has accomplished and allowed us to experience? It should cause us to step back and marvel at the goodness and graciousness of God who would choose to interact and enter into a sinful world so generously and so freely. It should deepen our worship. It should call us to great humility. And it should shock us just enough to look again at who God is, who we are, and where he leads us. Maybe that's why Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise was such a good song for us at the beginning of a conference where we draw near to God and challenge people to do the same. Because every now and then, we need to be poked with a sharp stick to wake us up, to cause us to pay attention, and then to worship God as we see him, as we know him, and more importantly, as he reveals himself. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm grateful, as always, to be here with the folk at Cooney Bible Church because um, I know their love for you, their diligence in caring for one another, and trying to be a community that witnesses to your word and to your world. So, Lord, um, maybe through Vacation Bible School coming up, and the delight and the questions and the awe of children, may we see new May we see you with fresh eyes. May you call us back to faith and to awareness that you are the living God. Amen.